In episode 97, cobbling technology together to follow every minute of the Trump impeachment trial. More on when guide dog discrimination and religious views collide. More thoughts on iOS accessibility bugs. And Bonnie and I discuss the new audio social network Clubhouse from a blindness perspective. It's good to be back with you once again. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate this community we've created where we help each other out with tech and other things, maybe expand each other's horizons and cause us to think about things or in ways that we haven't before. And uh, that's all sadly too rare these days in an era where good quality discourse is so difficult to find. In stark contrast with all this civil discourse, I have been glued to the impeachment coverage over the week. And as I've said before, people kind of shrug their shoulders and say, dude, what is a New Zealander doing being so absorbed with American politics? But the thing is, I'm absorbed with all sorts of politics. I was just totally glued to the Brexit coverage and the way that the campaign for a referendum to be held played out and then the campaign when the referendum was announced and then all the brouhaha and shenanigans after the Brexit referendum. It is fascinating and it's history. I've always loved history since I was a kid and I know that some people think that history is kind of a dry subject. Who would be interested in history? But history fascinates me because it's about people and events and rights, the way that our thinking has evolved. So when these big political moments occur, you realize that you are living through history. This particular moment in American history is going to be talked about long after we are all gone. And I find it both disturbing and enthralling. I should go back because we've had such a busy time on the podcast since I got back from my summer break, that I haven't really had the opportunity to comment on everything that happened in the United States while I was away. And this is one of those occasions where I take no pleasure in being right. But I saw that tweet from Donald Trump. I didn't follow him when he was on Twitter doing all his damage, but it was retweeted often enough by journalists that I follow. And it said that he was organizing a rally on the 6th of January at the Capitol, And he said that it would be wild. And you don't have to be a super duper expert in American politics to know what the 6th of January is in the Constitution. So you have these two very powder keggy things going on. You have somebody who, despite over 60 court cases, many of which were presided upon by people who he appointed, they've said, The election isn't stolen. There's no major wide-scale voter fraud. You never have an election that is completely fraud-free, of course. But there was no fraud that even came close to the standard that would overturn the election, which, by Trump's own definition, was a landslide. You know, 306 in the Electoral College, 7 million more people voting, you know? No-brainer. But anyway, he can't stand to lose. So he was going on the way out, stealing the furniture. When he said that there was going to be that rally on that day, I thought to myself, this is not going to end well. What's the end game here? Is the end game to try and create such a disturbed situation with this mob that he's whipped up with his lies that he's going to try and invoke the Insurrection Act? Is that the end game? And so I heard some of the speeches the night before because there was a crowd gathered there on the 5th of January. And I said to Bonnie, 
tomorrow we are going to see an attempted coup in the United States, and it's going to be very sad to watch and very traumatic. And then I woke up, it was pretty early my time, and I heard the speech that Trump gave at the rally. And then, sure enough, he started talking about we're going to march on the Capitol, and I thought, my God, I really hope that there are extra precautions that have been taken, that security is at the max You always think of the capital as this fortress in the United States, that everything that can be done would be done to protect legislators. And it was a very traumatizing, disturbing thing to watch. You know, America holds itself out as being this bastion, this beacon of democracy. And here you have a sitting president inciting a mob, as so very ably put by Liz Cheney herself. I know that Many Americans just don't care how they are perceived in the rest of the world, but some do. And I should say that this has been coming up in tea rooms, you know, just just being discussed around the world, people shrugging their shoulders and saying, how the heck did it get to this point? One of the things that I have said to New Zealanders who are now interested in this, but don't follow American politics as closely as I do, is that people should be careful about mocking too much or being disdainful. Because while the system was tested, probably in ways it's never been tested before, it was tested to the max, but it did not in the end break. Despite enormous efforts by the incumbent president, the outgoing president, it did not break. The judicial system held. You had judges who were appointed by the very person who was trying to overturn democratic principles, who stood for those democratic principles, who stood up against that president. You have electoral officials in the state of Georgia who were a member of that president's party, who were facing the additional pressure of elections that could and eventually did flip the Senate, giving control of all arms of government to the opposition. But they still did what was right. And I know there was some skepticism. I remember we were on air the day that the election was called by the networks. And we all speculated about what a difficult period America was heading into between that announcement and the inauguration. And I remember saying at the time that while I disagree with just about everything that Mike Pence says, that I did think he was a kind of traditional conservative with whom I can sit down and have a lively, robust discussion and respectfully disagree. And I thought that he would ensure that some semblance of sanity prevailed. Now, it was a close run thing because I think a lot got out of his control. But in the end, he did come through, didn't he? If Mike Pence had done what President Trump asked him to do, it would have been a very different situation. But irrespective of one's political leanings, whether one believes that government is the problem or the answer to the problem, surely you've got to draw a line in the sand over this behavior. Surely you have to. So I have watched enthralled every minute of the impeachment trial. And I wanted to talk about the technology behind that because there have been some challenges in doing this. You know, I have a really busy job. So I started this project, the how am I going to be able to kind of treat the impeachment trial like a DVR type thing, where I can begin watching it as it starts, because 
12 p.m. Eastern is 6 a.m. my time, 1 p.m. Eastern when the first day started, where they had that debate about whether you can just say to a president, okay, once you're out of office, never mind what you did in the last crazy couple of months of your tenure, we can't impeach you. It was a crazy discussion and a waste of time. But anyway, they had that. That started at 1 p.m. That's 7 a.m. in New Zealand. So that's okay. But then, of course, my workday starts and I've got stuff to do. So what's to do? My first thought was, can I do this whole thing on my iPhone? Because I figured it will probably go well into my evening before I can catch up with the full impeachment trial. My days are really full. So I want to watch it live for as long as I can. But then eventually work catches up and I have to pause it. I thought about the iPhone and using something like OOTunes, which has a pretty robust recording thing in their app. But I was just a little bit concerned that when I get phone calls or when I use my phone for Teams calls or Zoom calls, that that might affect the recording. And I didn't have a chance to do too much testing beforehand, so I was reluctant to do this. So what I did was I used Tap-In Radio on my PC. Tap-In Radio, which is all one word, T-A-P-I-N Radio, is a pretty cool app for Windows. It's a radio app, and they have made some efforts to make it accessible, which is really good. And you can listen to radio stations. Mushroom FM is in there, of course. And you can also record. You can record on a schedule, or you can just record as the need arises. And when you're recording, you can mute the audio, which is exactly what I wanted. So I'd start recording C-SPAN radio at the time that the impeachment hearings started. And when, inevitably, work began and I had to focus, then I would simply mute the audio And when I had a chance to catch up again, I would bring up my good old trusty Winamp, which I still use, much to the ridicule of some people, and catch up with where I left off, you know, jump to the time in the file and keep listening. And the cool thing about this is that it streams. So let me give you an example of why this is cool. Let's say that you are listening to the impeachment hearing and you're recording at the same time and then you get a phone call. And so you mute the audio and that phone call lasts for 20 minutes. So when the phone call is over or whenever you've got a chance to catch up again, you load the file in Winamp and you jump to the time that you started to do your phone call. So you stop listening at that point. And then they take a 15 minute recess. What you can then do is fast forward really quickly in your media player and catch up. And when you do catch up, The MP3 file is still being dumped onto your hard drive as it records and as you listen. So you've gone from having listened to a recording to having caught up in real time and effectively listening to an MP3 stream of what you are recording. Genius! So then my question became, how do I actually replicate this experience on the iPhone? And I tried this with several players. I moved my tap-in radio folder where radio recordings are stored, into Dropbox. And that allowed me to run the Dropbox app on my iPhone and find the recording and start listening to it and catching up with where I needed to be. But that was a fail. That was a fail because what it does is it downloads the file as it exists at the time that you opened it. It downloads it from Dropbox to your device. It doesn't stream from Dropbox. And that means that once you catch up with real time again, or real-time as it was when you started to press play, it stops. So no streaming there. 
And then I thought I would try an app called File Browser, which I've had for years. It predates the iOS Files app. And it connects to all sorts of things. And certainly from Dropbox, it had a similar issue. It's possible, I suppose, that had I saved it to my Synology network-attached storage drive, I may have got a different result. But the trouble is, when you start fooling with this, you waste more time than you save, you know what I mean? So I, I guess I need to try and play with this a bit more when the pressure is off, when I don't have an immediate task that I'm trying to accomplish. So then I resorted to the good old geeky VLC. VLC is a great media player, actually. It does all sorts of cool stuff, and it's on just about every platform you can imagine. And there is a VOC for iOS, and gosh, that's full of jargon. (laughs) There's a VOC for iOS, and it is accessible. And I tried to stream from Dropbox, and that actually did work. But the trouble I had was that I couldn't easily seek to the part of the file I needed to be. So if I opened a file and it was an hour and 30 minutes long and I've already heard an hour and 15 minutes of it, I could not, while it was streaming from the Dropbox, quickly get to that 1.15 point. Incidentally, this is an issue with a lot of iOS players. In fact, with every one that I've found, there is not, in any of these players that I've found, a jump to time feature where you can just double tap a jump to time button and type in the point in the file that you want to get to any developers listening that would be a killer feature in one of these media players so you know what i did in the end i just used a shoutcast server i know this is a very geeky solution shoutcast is the technology that powers a lot of streaming internet radio stations and you can or you could download the shoutcast server technology and run your own server on your own computer. And I do that. So I just set up a shoutcast server and whenever I wanted to take my phone somewhere and step away from the computer, step away from the computer, sir, and keep listening, I would just stream from Winamp to that shoutcast server and then listen and tune in. That is a very kludgy solution, but that's how I was able to keep up with the impeachment trial when work commitments permitted. So there you go. The combination of a political geek and a tech geek, it's a wonderful thing. (laughs) Hello, Jonathan Mosen and anybody else listening. (laughs) My name is uh, Rickson Smith, and I'm calling from the great city of Chicago, Illinois. And uh, unlike you, Jonathan, I normally would be following the uh, impeachment here in the United States, but I am so despondent because um, I actually voted for Trump and I am so embarrassed because I was too prideful to vote for President Biden because I, I actually knew he would have been a better guy, but I didn't want to because of pride and I thought it was... was uh, I, I never really ever even looked at how he would have gone that far. Uh, Trump would have gone that far. But that's a topic for another day. Uh, You've mentioned about how difficult it is to be getting employed and things. And one of the things I was thinking about is uh, how do blind people dress? Do we dress in a way that puts our best foot forward that's really key about being employed and and looking for employment. You know, 
you don't wear a suit and tie to a construction site. And on the other end of things, you don't wear a pair of greasy overalls to a bank teller interview. That kind of thing. You know, how are we putting our best face forward for the careers we want to go into? Because people look at us and judge us even before we get a chance to talk to them. And a lot of it is that because how we dress. Nice to hear from you, Rickson. From one windy city to another, they call Wellington the capital of New Zealand, where I am the windy city as well, you know. There is no doubt that many people in the United States have voters' remorse right now. There are some stats, some polling data coming through now that indicate that the Republicans have really taken a hit in terms of popularity, people identifying as Republicans since the 6th of January insurrection. Not exactly on brand, is it, on message when you have the leader of that party that has so long claimed to stand for law and order engaging in a coordinated effort over many months to sow seeds of doubt and then whip it all up into a frenzy. So it's a problem for them, and the recovery is going to be difficult, complex, interesting to watch. Yes, the subject of the way that we appear to people, our personal appearance as blind people, is really important, and it's more complex than one might first imagine. I've always been of the view that the way we look is something we can control, money permitting. And of course, dressing well does cost. And if you can't afford to dress well yourself, there are organizations that can help with this, with very good quality used clothing. Bonnie used to volunteer for an organization called Dress for Success. I think that was for women, but there are probably, I hope there are, equivalent organizations for men. And if anybody knows anything about that, then let us know. One of the biggest problems we face as blind people is not the impairment itself, but other people's perceptions of it, because so many people are frightened by blindness. They can't imagine how it's possible to function if you can't see. So anything that we can do to lessen the skepticism, to make ourselves look competent, we should do it. And I have often found that if you are dressed in a suit and tie, you tend to get treated like an adult. I mean, it's not a foolproof system. You're not completely immune from idiotic behavior, but it does seem to minimize it. There is that. It's also complex, though, because standards keep changing. I've got a couple of examples of this, one blindness-related and personal, and one not. When I began to work for Ira, there were a number of blind people who were working for Ira with me, and a number of us who've held senior executive roles in other organizations would turn up to meetings at Ira wearing a suit and tie. But this is San Diego, and Ira had very much a startup culture. Many of the staff were younger, and the dress was pretty casual. So it is possible, I suppose, to look overdressed and not know it. I just felt more comfortable in that sort of clothing when I'm on work-related duty as a vice president of a company. But it's not always the way these days. You look at people like Tim Cook and, before him, Steve Jobs. Some of those people are very casual dresses. So I suppose it's important to just make some gentle inquiries and find out what are your colleagues wearing or ask what are the expectations about the way that you should dress in a given situation. But appearances matter. So one way or the other, I do think it is important to make that effort and to at least look tidy. Whether you're in a suit and tie or something that's just nice looking, you can look tidy. 
and do what you can do to make sure that you don't have something spilled down your front or something like that. Ira itself is quite good to check those things out, you know, get somebody to have a look at an item of clothing and make sure that you are looking okay. Perhaps you might have some tips, some ideas about strategies for making sure that you are looking good and looking acceptable. The non-blindness-related, non-personal example is something that's gone a bit viral from here in New Zealand. They've been having some debate in our parliament for a wee while now about dress code, and there's been some pressure brought to bear on parliament to abandon the need for men to wear ties. The standing orders, which are like the Bible of our parliament, say that you have to be dressed in smart business attire, And that has been interpreted to mean men should be wearing a jacket and tie. And there was some advocacy about this late last year. So the Speaker of Parliament did a bit of a whip around, asked some MPs what they thought. And the consensus was, no, we should retain it. Well, earlier this week, one of our Maori MPs, the Indigenous people of New Zealand, said that he should be able to wear a taonga, a treasure that is not a tie, but has similar symbolism in the Maori culture. And there was quite a furore because he got up to speak in Parliament and the Speaker initially said, no, I am not going to call the member. I'm not going to let you talk in Parliament because the standing orders say you should be wearing a tie and you are not. And this MP argued the question. He eventually got kicked out of Parliament. So with all that's going on, COVID-19, we've got a bit of a housing crisis in New Zealand, supply is down and prices are up. But everybody was talking about whether MPs should have to, that's members of parliament, should have to wear ties or not. So now the speaker has backed down. And should you ever become a member of New Zealand's parliament, you won't be required to wear a tie anymore. You are welcome to, of course, but you are no longer required to. Like the show? Then why not like it on Facebook too? Get upcoming show announcements, useful links and a bit of conversation. Head on over now to facebook.com slash large. That's facebook.com slash M-O-S-E-N at large to stay connected between episodes. Tim Mihok is on the email and he says, Hello, Jonathan, I noticed a commercial on your podcast that you have returned to Facebook. I had agreed in full to your principles in staying away from FB and I am interested in what has changed so that I may consider entering FB as well. Have the best of days, says Tim. Well, you too, Tim. You could probably have best of days by not being on Facebook, I suspect. Nothing too dramatic to report here, other than back in 20... Gosh, it's all becoming a bit of a blur. Early 2019, it must have been, when I was working for Ira, they said to me, would you consider getting on the book so that you can help us manage the social media on Facebook. And I said to them, well, you know, I'm really not a big Facebook fan at all, but since it's you, I'll get on Facebook. And since I had to have a Facebook account to help do that, I added a few friends, you know, family members, that sort of thing. And I've just stuck around. I have to say, I am sort of heartened by a couple of things. One, Apple's privacy guidelines are really helping, I think, to get Facebook in line. Also, they do now have the Facebook oversight board But it's a really marginal thing for me. And every so often I do think about getting off it. And I may well still do that. But while I'm there, I sort of thought, well, I may as well publicize the Mosin at Large page because one of the things that really makes this podcast worthwhile is contributions 
like yours. So while I have an active Facebook account for as long as I have it, I may as well just spread the word that that page exists and engage with some of our listeners that way. Probably quite a boring answer, but there you have it. Some more comments coming in on iOS issues, starting with Bryant Walker, who says, Hi, Jonathan, this is a very interesting conversation we are having regarding Apple and the recent bugs that have appeared regarding Braille. I can confirm that I am having problems with Braille as well. I am using a Braille Sense Polaris with the latest version of iOS and an iPhone 11 Pro. Out of curiosity, I tried locking both my phone screen and my Polaris to see if I am having the same problems other people are having. When I unlocked my screen, though iOS said the Braille display was still connected, it would not display Braille. Tapping on the name of the Braille display to reconnect it also does not work. While I have always been taught to be thankful for what you have, I think that we need to take this particular issue seriously. Blind people should not be forced to choose between a security fix or a stable Braille experience. However, unlike some people that may say they want to switch to Android because of these issues, this is not the case for me. Android just is not where iOS is yet and does not have nearly as good of hearing aid support, if any. But this poses a question I did want to ask. I have heard some people ask, is it time for Apple to focus less on innovation and more on fixing these critical bugs that seem to pop up on a somewhat regular basis? While it is great that Apple is adding new features to VoiceOver every iOS version, do you think it is time for them to change their priorities? Well, Bryant, of course, iOS 13 was that release, wasn't it? That's where they kind of pulled way back on new features and decided to steady the ship. I don't know whether we really benefited from that experience or not, but certainly there is an argument that says that that's what's required in the context of voiceover. As I've said on this show before, I think one of the big Apple challenges is this concept of equivalency. I believe some bugs are being let through, because sighted people are making wrong decisions about the impact that those bugs are having on blind people who are affected by them. When accessibility and quality assurance are resourced correctly, a company the size of Apple should be able to innovate and offer quality at the same time. Hello, Jonathan. This is Adi from Israel. I would like to comment on some points raised on your last episode of Mosin at Large. First of all, thank you for Everything that you're doing in order to advocate for Braille, Apple has some serious quality problems when it comes to Braille, not only to Braille, but to some other stuff as well, in accessibility over the recent years, despite their great work. But I would like to comment on some points raised. First of all is the point about the Hebrew Braille. Uh, A person who I know uh, mentioned on your podcast that it's impossible to send uh, to write Hebrew content with a QWERTY Braille display while using the LibLui keyboard uh, Braille table, and that is Apple's fault. This is a bit incorrect. I'm not here to protect Apple, but there is no normal LibLui Braille table for Hebrew at this point. Um, I have finally decided to work on this issue since I'm working on uh, other assistive technology products, such as the Hebrew version of JAWS and some other stuff. So I have now made a good Hebrew LibLui table, which is now in test by some uh, uh, Braille specialists here in Israel. Computer Braille first. Grade one will be done later. And we hope to submit it to LibLui and hopefully one day Apple will pull it and 
this specific issue will be fixed. So this is not exactly Apple's fault in this specific case. And it's important to mention it so that people will know what to expect. But Hebrew has its own problems uh, with Braille, even with the default tables, which are Duxbury tables that are built into iOS. Uh, they have problems with writing Hebrew as well. But this is, again, not exactly Apple's fault because they're working with a third party here. And this is exactly the question. How do we re relate to the company? Like, do we talk to the screen reader vendor itself or to the third party Braille translation company, which they work with, which most of the users don't even know who they are? After all, yeah, the end vendor, in this case is Apple, should be responsible for fixing these issues. I agree, but uh, what happens with Hebrew Braille is something that needs to be understood. Apple has very bad Hebrew support for voiceover in general on iOS and other operating systems that they have, which is not fixed or tweaked for years now. And it even gets worse from update to update. It looks like the localization team here in Israel or somewhere else who is responsible for Hebrew does not test voiceover at all. Or if they do, it looks like they test it like in a very basic way. And sometimes they add things that should improve things like the Hebrew Siri voice, but they break the voiceover readability And in other cases, there are just voiceover core features that don't work with right to left at all, such as editing text. If you edit text and you don't use the voiceover rotor, but you use the standard keyboard cursor, both on iOS and other operating systems that Apple has, it cannot track the cursor with right to left keyboards and right to left uh, paragraph layouts. So, and these are basic things that prevent correct uh, functionality when editing Hebrew or Arabic text. Same thing goes with reading web pages, not on iOS, but on their computer operating system. It is so badly broken. And yes, they don't fix it, despite the fact that they know about these issues for like five years now. So that's a bit disappointing. The best right-to-left uh, supported screen reader, in my opinion, and at least as far as I know, to this day, is JAWS. Uh, so that's about Hebrew Braille. The second comment I would like to raise is about the issue of developing Braille displays and expensive um, note-taker products. Like you said um, on your podcast, it is very hard to achieve everything we want. And I'm speaking as a product manager of one of the Braille uh, note-taker products, so to say. I'm now managing the development of the L Braille for a while. And... As consumers, we want everything, right? We want a low price. We want, uh, in order to make it affordable, we want to have the best processors, like in the case of the L-Braille, everyone emails us why there is no i7 processor, why there is no 64 gigabytes of memory, and I can buy a laptop that has so much more than this. And yet we still want the good battery life and a small form factor. Like the ideal device, like... Many people contact us asking me why there is no L Braille 14 new version yet that has the these very crazy specs like i7 and whatever. So it is very hard to physically and technologically up until this point to achieve these things. So some compromises need to be made in some cases. So I perfectly understand all the other vendors. I think that as consumers, it's good that we want so much stuff and we deserve to have the best accessibility uh, equipment and the best assistive technology possible. And I'm talking as a blind person right now, right? Who uses these devices on 
my own. I use Braille every single day in life. This is my primary work tool. And I really want to develop uh, the best products to have a good user impact and to have users working in the best possible way, which is, and with the best efficient way. But sometimes it is out of your control. For example, in the case of the Windows world, still the big companies who make processors and who make mobile processors are not yet up to to the level that allows uh, somebody to provide a very thin device with crazy battery life, extra crazy performance that users want. And the L-Braille is one example of that. So we hope to see improvements in that on that front. I mentioned the L-Braille just because this is what I am managing, so I know how this is from inside. But it applies to every other note taker or Braille product or any assistive technology product. And yes, profit is not a bad word. We should put food on the table, right, in order to survive. And of course, if a product is not profitable, the company goes non-profitable. And then, well, (laughs) as you said, it's going to be a big problem because then things won't be developed because the companies will stop functioning. So I completely agree with your point. And many, many times consumers don't understand how difficult it was to make these decisions and to skip features or to choose what you want to put in and what you're not going to be putting in. And yes, money is a factor, of course, because sure, as consumers, we all want everything. Hi, Jonathan and all of these listeners. It's Madeline Mulch again. I have some exciting news for those people who use Face ID on their Apple products. You can now use Face ID while wearing a mask. How exciting is that? That's something I would like to try someday, and I'm really excited about it. Yes, many people have thought during the pandemic, oi, I wish I'd had Touch ID right now instead of the Face ID. And in 14.5, there are several really exciting changes coming in iOS. One of them is that when you're wearing a mask and the Face ID system detects this, if you're wearing an Apple Watch that is secured with a password and it's going to lock itself when you take it off your wrist then you can unlock your phone when you're wearing your Apple Watch. It's a cool and sensible idea, borrowed from the Mac, I think, because you can sit down at a Mac and unlock your Mac with your Apple Watch when you're wearing it, when the watch is secured in a similar way. And there are other really great changes coming in iOS 14.5, including apparently the ability to select your music service or your podcast service for various things, that you want to play externally. So the way it's supposed to work is that you say to Siri, play, say, the Beatles, and it will say, what service do you want to use? And you say Apple Music or Spotify or whatever it is you want to use. And then it's supposed to remember that. It is not always doing that for me. But it's early days, and it will be interesting to see whether this one makes it to prime time for 14.5, because sometimes it appears to be allowing you to specify podcast apps instead of music apps and causing all sorts of chaos. And at the moment, it feels like the user interface isn't there at this point to change any default setting. But it's another response, I would suggest, to some of the antitrust talk that is going on out there. And it's a really good system if they can make it work. While we are talking Apple things, I should also say that the rumor mill is starting to firm up around the idea that there's a new iPad Pro coming in March, and with it, 
the Apple tags. Oh my, how long have we been talking about these Apple tags now? This is the alternative to Tile. They're supposed to be intelligent and sleek and slick, and they're using Apple's wideband technology, the W1 technology that is built into some of the newer iPhones. So I'm really looking forward to those Apple tags coming along and we can find out how good they really are, how they compare with Tile. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. We've had a few comments coming in on our talkback presentation that Nick Zamarelli put together for us. The first thing I should emphasize is that this is the talkback that is included with the Samsung Galaxy. And if, like me, you were listening to the Samsung Galaxy event where they unveiled the S21 range, you will have heard the guy from Google get up and announce that Google and Samsung were collaborating on a special version of TalkBack. So this is not news, and of course this is what Nick found in his review. As is not surprising, the mainstream tech press, at least not that I saw, did not really cover this issue of a new version of TalkBack being included in the Samsung Galaxy products. So you may not have known about this unless you were listening to the Galaxy event. So Nick, who probably didn't hear this event and is a long-time Samsung user, was understandably surprised and confused when he upgraded his device to a new version of Android, only to find that the screen reader that he has used for years has suddenly been taken away. So we've had a few emails from people who said, you know, Samsung have mentioned this. It's no surprise. This is why voice assistant is gone. I think that really misses the point. The point is that there should have been some sort of message that was accessible to Samsung users who use voice assistant when they upgraded their operating system that essentially popped up and said, From now on, Google and Samsung are working together on TalkBack. And here's the brand new TalkBack in association with Samsung and Google. There's only one screen reader now, and we think this is a great experience. But for voice assistant to just sort of disappear on the upgrade does seem like a bit of a communications failure to me and not particularly respectful to those longtime users of the Samsung voice assistant product. Because many people bought Samsung specifically because it had voice assistant in it. You know, before TalkBack got multi-touch, the fact that Samsung's voice assistant was multi-touch was a really big advantage for going with Samsung. And that's not to say that the new TalkBack isn't a great improvement or whatever. I'm in no position to say that. It sounds like from Nick's demo, it's not too bad. But changing a screen reader on someone is a really big user shift. I mean, imagine if you upgraded Windows one day and you found that Narrator had been deleted, and let's say they put JAWS in its place. You'd be pretty flummoxed by that, wouldn't you? Especially if there was no explanation that you had access to. So I think the fact that we played Nick's confusion and concern that the screen reader he had used for a long time disappeared is perfectly relevant, and Samsung should be mindful of that in future, although they probably won't do anything so drastic in future. While that was playing out on Mushroom FM last week, we had some tweets from Caroline Taves, and we've also had an email from Christian on the same subject. Christian says, you can get heading navigation to appear in the reading menu of the new TalkBack by going to the Customize Menus option in TalkBack Settings. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice, or just write it down. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N 
at mushroomfm.com or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. Benji's in touch once again from the UK. Dear Jonathan, thank you for your answer to my last query about accessible SSH clients on iOS. In short, Prompt 2 works beautifully with VoiceOver. I'm glad that works for you, Benji. Having doggedly resisted the pressure for decades, I now find myself left with little choice but to make the transition to JAWS. Cue hammer horror scream. Oh dear. My use cases are simply too advanced for NVDA or Narrator. Programming in Visual Studio, composing and editing documents and spreadsheets in MS Office, to name two categories. As part of the switch, I'm also looking at a new machine, a mini tower from Dell. What hardware specs, ideally, would you recommend for a smooth, relatively lag-free experience with JAWS in said software environments? There is quite a gap in price between an i5 and an i7 chip. Your advice is always gratefully received. I may be pushing my luck with my next question, but is there any way to get JAWS to work with deck talk in whatever form it exists these days. Natural voices just don't cut it for me, not least as they offer limited scalability. Thank you, Jonathan, for being one of the few remaining voices of reason in the world of access technology and disability politics. Thank you very much, Bendy. That's really kind. I think you will end up enjoying JAWS. I'm not sure what the reasons are for you waiting for decades to adopt it. But I think it's a testimony to the way good access technology can be developed. The original JAWS for DOS was a product of Hinter Joyce. And Ted Hinter was a blind guy. He became blind in an accident. And then he taught himself to program because he rightly determined that computers were the future. And built a screen reader that met his needs. It was a very powerful product in DOS for the time. You got those macros which allowed you to do some pretty cool automation tasks. And then many of us thought, hmm, Windows is going to be the end of us because it's graphical. And Glenn Gordon was employed by Hinter Joyce. Glenn is still there. He really is the father of usable, viable Windows screen reading technology. And even when you're not using JAWS, you're really benefiting from his ideas, his intellectual property. And over the years, blind people have had a lot of input into the way that JAWS has evolved and the feature set. You've got blind developers, blind scriptwriters, blind people involved in technical support. Eric Damry is cited. One of the things that really impressed me when I went to Freedom Scientific for the first time, sort of under the radar in 2006, when I was thinking of making the jump from Humanware to Freedom Scientific, was I went into Eric Damry's office for the first time, and there he was, the cited guy, doing his work, with the screen off, using JAWS. So Eric's made an amazing contribution, and I believe he really understands how blind people like to work, which is a great skill to have in a sighted person. So JAWS has evolved to be a really powerful, usable product. And what I like about the evolution of JAWS is that they really cracked Windows screen reading. They got it right. I remember looking at JAWS for DOS and then JAWS for Windows, And it was familiar enough that it made me think, maybe there is hope. 
Maybe Windows isn't going to be this huge step backwards that many of us in the mid-90s thought that it might be, particularly with some earlier Windows screen readers that we saw that just sort of didn't feel that intuitive. And of course, subsequent products have sort of, shall we say, borrowed a lot of those user interface paradigms that were not patented. So we have a lot, I think, to be thankful for in terms of the contribution that JAWS has made. It allows me to be truly efficient and truly productive. When you get into environments like call centers and that sort of thing, it's customizable. JAWS really is the difference for many people being employed and not being employed. And I think we should celebrate all that JAWS has given the blind community and the fact that we've built this product together. Yes, it's not cheap. They've tried to address some of those things over the years in recent times with subscription plans and that sort of thing. But high quality technical support is available and it's still here, whereas many cheaper solutions are not still here. To answer your specific questions, I think there will be various opinions on that. And so I welcome people submitting their own opinions. But here's my own advice based on shopping for computers and and seeing various configurations. I would say that if you have to make some trade-offs, if you don't have the budget to just buy the ultimate dream machine PC, the most important thing would be first, RAM. You can get by with 8 gigs of RAM. You can probably get by with a smaller number, but I wouldn't want to go any lower than 8 gigs of RAM, and I think I would prefer to use 16 gigs of RAM. Investing in a bit more RAM, particularly when you're talking about the tasks that you're discussing where we're not looking at major grunty tasks like video editing or even audio processing. You'll get more bang for your buck by increasing your RAM. Things will load faster, just feel snappier. If you can manage 16 gigs of RAM, I would go with that. Second, again for your use case, if I had the choice between an i7 processor and an SSD, a solid state drive, I would go for the solid state drive. You'll find it boots way quicker And you'll also find that it really helps with the loading. 16 gigs of RAM on a machine with a solid state drive and an i5 processor, in my opinion, you'll be doing pretty well with that. If you can get the i7 or or, or greater, then go for it. But that would be my priority. RAM first, an SSD next, and think about the processor last if you've got a little bit of change left over. I don't know the answer to your deck talk question. Deck talk access to do do (laughs) was the last one that I used in the deck talk range. I like eloquence. I really do like eloquence. And the reason for that is that most of the time, and it's not perfect, nothing is. When you get used to eloquence, if it mispronounces something, there's a very good chance that you're dealing with a typo. It is accurate. You can get used, for example, to even being able to tell just the way it's reading that you've forgotten to capitalize the letter I in mid-sentence. You can really get some pretty amazing nuances, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, with eloquence and jaws, and it's really snappy as well. So maybe give that a try and see if you can get used to it if you haven't used eloquence before, because it is built into jaws. If anyone has a version of Deck Talk working, whether it be hardware or software, please let us know what you're doing and where you're getting it from. I'm sure there'll be people interested in that. Deck Talk used to be considered the kind of gold standard. They weren't cheap. So when you could get DeckTalk in software, I sort of thought, wow, you know, I've made it because DeckTalk was this great mythical thing to have. But in retrospect, I think eloquence actually pronounces things better overall. 
I wish you all the best. Do let us know, Benji, how you're getting on, how you're settling in with JAWS. The other thing I would say, too, is there's a lot of very good training material available for the new user. And there's also a lot now built into JAWS. So as I was saying earlier, they started by kind of getting Windows sorted. They've been able to spend time because they were so far ahead in recent years to make the user experience really friendly. So you have things like the startup wizard. You have a lot of context sensitive of help. You have the command search where you can press the JAWS key with the space bar and then J and type in what you are looking for. And then you can find the commands. So not only is it a very robust and fully featured solution, it's also pretty user friendly now. Jason Stradone's back in touch. He says, hello, Jonathan. First, thank you for all the good content you provide to us. Well, thank you so much, Jason. He says, I have purchased a Samsung Q2U microphone for Zoom calls because of the audio quality I had heard on your shows when you had used it in the past. I'm now wondering if that was not the best solution, since, as you previously mentioned, a headset should be used to prevent the audio from the call being picked up by the mic. I know you can plug a headset into the mic for monitoring the audio. Would you suggest doing it this way and sending JAWS to also use the mic for the sound card output? Or would I be better off getting a combination headset mic instead? Also, how important do you think it is to have some sort of audio interface instead of just a USB connection directly into the computer? Jason, if you don't mind holding the mic or you have some sort of nice stand for the Q2U, you could get a boom stand or something like that so that you're not holding the mic all the time, then you will have much better Zoom audio quality than probably 99% of people on Zoom. And people will say to you, dude, they will say, how are you producing that amazing audio? You sound like you're right in the room with us and people will be grateful. So I think that Q2U mic is really good value for money. It produces a great sound, cool little dynamic mic. For those who weren't listening to Mosin at Large then when I've talked about this microphone, it's a great mic because it does double duty. You can connect it to an audio interface or a mixer using XLR which is a sort of a high-end professional audio-grade connector, or you can use it as a USB microphone, and it acts as its own sound card. So if you've got something you can throw in the back there by way of a headset, you know, it just has a standard 3.5-millimeter headphone jack, then, yeah, that's going to be a great solution. When you're using Zoom with JAWS, there's absolutely nothing at all wrong with sending JAWS to the Samsung Q2U's audio interface option so that you can hear Zoom and JAWS through the same headset, if that's what you prefer, that is going to work just fine. So I think you have got a very good solution. There are some good quality microphone headsets out there, and you may just find that it's more convenient to have an all-in-one USB microphone headset. You have to be a bit careful about what you purchase, because there's a wide variety of audio quality with these things. But gosh, since you have the Q2U, you really are going to sound great if you continue to use it and just get a setup that you're happy with. And as I say, you can plug the Q2U into an audio interface if you choose to buy one. Now, that could be a way around this because then you would have an audio interface with a headphone jack and also the Samsung Q2U. I think the Q2U is going to sound better plugged into an audio interface through the XLR jack than it's going to sound through the USB audio USB audio just tends to be 
slightly poorer quality. The thing is, though, I don't think you're really going to hear an appreciable difference on something like a Zoom call, which is unless you're doing the hi-fi Zoom call compressed to all heck anyway. You would get more flexibility with an audio interface. Depending on the interface you buy, you can plug in multiple microphones. I've got a Focusrite 8i6 here, so it's got a lot of inputs. You can plug microphones directly into it, and you can mix and match the channels, and you can have headphone jacks. Some of them have multiple headphone outputs. But if it's just you on a Zoom call, then for that use case, if that's all that we're talking about, I think what you have should suit you really well. Good luck. Some more discussion on the guide dog issue with respects to Uber and taxis. Vaughan Rolls starts us off from Australia. He says, hi, Jonathan, I have listened with interest to your discussion of guide dog refusals by Uber. Like many of us, I have had this experience. As a lawyer, I try and advocate not only for myself, but in the hope that my small contribution makes a difference to everyone. I recommend activating your video on your smartphone as the Uber approaches. This way, you get a recording of the conversation and hopefully some vision if you are refused. I have a case at the moment. The short version is the driver refused my guide dog, but I was already halfway into the back seat of the vehicle. He made physical contact with me as he told me to get out of the car. That is currently the subject of police investigation, so I won't say much more on this. I have also taken legal action with the Australian Human Rights Commission for discrimination against Uber as a company and the driver personally. I have instructed private lawyers to act on my behalf in both matters. I am fortunate I can do this. In Australia, taxi fares are subsidised. The disabled passenger, essentially and with some limits, pays half the fare and the government the rest. As a result of lobbying within the disability community, Victoria have allowed this subsidy to extend to Uber travel. Caution needs to be exercised by those advocating for the rights of people with disabilities in this space. These advocates, like me, are generally speaking fortunate. They have employment, are articulate, and far less vulnerable than many within the disabled community. I am a great believer in choice and control over one's destiny. That said, taxi drivers, at least in this country, receive basic disability training. Safety within taxis is taken seriously. There are cameras in each vehicle which continuously operate. This is in contrast to Uber. If we advocate for choice and control in circumstances where the companies provide the service pay lip service to the rights of people with disability, we can't then complain if, in this case, the taxi industry suffers a decline in both driver standards and driver quality as a result of reduced revenue. The change may bring savings to disability advocates who are employed and articulate, leaving people with cognitive and other physical disabilities in a position of vulnerability and exploitation. Love your show, keep up the good work, and happy 2021. Fantastic message, Vaughan. Thank you so much and best of luck with your action. When you're able, please do let us know how you get on. I should say that here in New Zealand, we have a similar scheme as well. It's administered by local government, so there are varying subsidies around the country, but we also get 50% taxi travel here. As we talked about last week here in New Zealand, Uber has not yet been successful in getting that scheme extended. Even without that 50% subsidy, Uber is often cheaper particularly if you can get them to give you a fixed price ride 
from home to work, for example. The problems you describe are very real, but I would have thought very fixable with the right advocacy, because you would hope that regulatory authorities would require these rideshare providers to have the same disability training and implement the same safety measures that taxi companies have. I agree that maybe cameras in all Ubers is a bit of a stretch because they are private vehicles fundamentally, but certainly disability training you would think should be mandatory before they go on the platform. And whenever I talk to Uber about this, they do tell me that they educate their drivers about the fact that it's the law, that they must transport a guide dog. It's not optional. They've got to do it. And clearly their training is inadequate. And that's what I continually say to them when these issues occur. Hopefully, too, the taxi companies will lift their game. I know here in New Zealand, we have seen some improvement in the user experience. And by that, I mean some taxi companies are now using apps. Some of them are better than others. Some of them are more accessible than others. But they're trying to emulate that Uber experience where you can use an app to summon a vehicle, find out who's coming, where they are, get a notification when they're pulling up. And I mean, we've had text message notification of that for a while, but the app experience is so good. And then have a payment method on file so that when your trip is over, you get out of the vehicle and you get on with your life. Of course, because of the 50% subsidy that we have eligibility for with taxis, you do have to swipe your total mobility card as well. Karen Ashland has a guide dog refusal story. She says, a couple visited me and we decided to go out to eat to a restaurant called The Chinese Table. I had Vanessa, my golden guide dog, but they refused us because of the dog. The police were called, but they refused to come, saying that it was a civil issue. We went somewhere else. I called the Civil Rights Commission and was told that I definitely had grounds for a civil rights suit if I wanted to pursue it. I wrote the restaurant a letter explaining that I felt that they were in the wrong, that I didn't want to have a battle, but I wanted them to understand the law. A few days later, a guy called me. He was from a friend of the Chinese owners of the restaurant, and they sent him out to me with a $20 ticket to have dinner there and an invitation for me to come there. I gathered a whole bunch of people, most of whom had guide dogs, and we all went to the Chinese table and had a great dinner. The people there were quite nice. Regarding cab drivers who refuse to take people with guide dogs because of religious reasons, I am a cynic. I doubt the validity of the religious reason. Thanks, Carol. That certainly brings back memories for me. We actually had Eric Damry out here. It must have been 2008. It was quite a long time ago now. And Julia and I decided to take him to a famous steakhouse in Auckland. You want to take someone who's come all the way out to New Zealand from the United States somewhere special. So we all went to this steakhouse and the table was laid for the number of people. There were a few of us going to dinner that night. And Eric could see that the table was vacant. But when we got there and they saw the dog, they decided not to have us in the main part of the restaurant. And they started asking questions like, does the dog bite and what if the dog has fleas? And I thought this was extraordinary because they'd been around a very long time and you'd think they would know the law about guide dogs. But they decided to put us somewhere in the back of beyond eventually. I mean, originally it was quite a battle to get them to serve us, but clearly they were not going to put us in the table that they had originally assigned when we made the reservation. 
I remain pretty calm in these situations most of the time. And I said to the proprietor of the restaurant, look, if you choose not to treat us like any other customer and give us the table that's clearly intended for us and discriminate against us in this way, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to go outside and call the police. And then while I wait for the police to come, I'm going to call the media. And I did exactly that. I went outside, called the police. And while I was on the phone, the police actually called the media. It was the most extraordinary thing. I I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. The police were really annoyed that this was happening to us. And so while they turned up and had a word with the proprietor and took his name and all that sort of stuff and started the process, they also had a journalist turn up and the name of the restaurant and all the gory details were in the Sunday paper. It was then all over talk radio. I was interviewed several times. We eventually went to the Human Rights Commission for mediation, which is a process available to us here. So it cost them a lot of business. A lot of people were commenting on social media and on talk radio saying, if that's the way they treat blind people, you know, we love guide dogs. We're just not going to go there again. You have to wonder, was it really worth disobeying the law? Jonathan, this is Petra, and I wanted to weigh in on the guide dogs and Uber and taxi cabs. And again, I think that if your religion prohibits you doing any part of the job, or if your medical condition prohibits you doing any part of the job, then you need to look for another job. So I don't accept that um, excuse. You need to find another job, and that's the way I feel about it. Happy New Year to you, Petra. First time we've heard from you on the show this year. I personally agree with you on both counts. Now, Tim has a different view in the Netherlands, and he sent an email after last week's show saying, should there be an exemption for people with allergies? In my view, if I applied for a job as a career driver or a truck driver, then it would be clear that my disability prevents me from executing the duties of that job. Therefore, I just can't do it. They're going to give it to someone else. And similarly, if you are required to transport all members of the public and you can't, then in my view, that rules you out of that particular profession. I agree with you. Go and do another job. Because otherwise, you're almost forced to disclose, which is the whole point of this legislation. The whole point of all we advocated for was that you didn't need to disclose in advance. If you have people on staff or as part of your driver pool who have an allergy and you just request a ride like everybody else and you don't disclose that you have a guide dog, which you're not required to do, and then a driver turns up even with a medical certificate that says they can't take you because they're allergic, then as we discussed last week, you could be seriously inconvenienced by that while the driver speeds off and you have to wait for another vehicle. To me, that disqualifies you from being in that profession. Over in the UK, Andrew Walker writes, the position in the UK regarding taxi access sounds very similar to that in New Zealand, although the legislation will be different, I am sure. The main problem that I see is that drivers, especially if they own their own vehicles, seem to think that they can operate them as private vehicles. They often, and this is a generalization I know, seem to fail to understand their responsibilities as offering a public service. It is also, as far as I am aware, not mandatory in the UK for drivers to have specific disability access training. Even in local authorities where training is given, many drivers, although a minority, ignore the law. Others comply grudgingly 
but the majority are fine. As you have illustrated in your experiences of accessing cars with Bonnie, he puts in brackets with a capital B, (laughs) the, the uncertainty may lead to anxiety. Catching a train, for instance, when one is uncertain about whether a taxi refusal may be in the offing can be stressful. I have to confess that I avoid using taxis of any stripe for this reason. Part of the problem in the UK is that, although the law exists, an individual has to approach the licensing body to take action or to take personal legal action against the driver or company. Enforcement by local authorities resulting in fines is extremely rare, although offences are commonplace. Sure, a complaint to the company results in the right kinds of noises, but there seem seldom to be consequences on the drivers, and, of course, word spreads among drivers who develop strategies for avoiding carrying dogs in particular. I have been told by a number of great drivers about what they have seen drivers do, including driving past a taxi rank and going around the block to avoid picking up a blind person at the front of the rank, rejecting jobs through automated systems where they work out that it is a blind person making a regular journey. On one occasion, a driver entered a job as completed when he was due to pick me up from work and run me to the station. He even completed a journey to the station so it looked to the GPS data that the job had been done. These things can be difficult to prove without pretty certain evidence. In this latter case, I had a good relationship with the taxi company manager over many years, and this resulted in the driver's undoing, but that is not always the position. As far as I am aware, there is no religious basis for dogs being refused, but that dog saliva is seen as unclean. A black cab driver initially refused to carry me, but when he realised I knew about the problem he had, we had a dialogue. He explained that if he became contaminated, he would have to go home, shower, and change his clothes before resuming work. I suggested that he stay in his cab, I would travel in the back with my dog, and that I would go to his door to pay him at the end of the journey ensuring that my dog would not come in contact with him. This proved successful, and the driver picked me up on subsequent occasions and used the same scheme. I agree with you that making it okay for some drivers to declare that they will not carry dogs may have unsatisfactory outcomes. Could this then be applied to shops and eating places? I suspect also that quite a number of drivers who comply with regulations at the moment, given the choice, would not do so. I am, in addition, very much against what I consider to be the consequence of a ghetto service for people with disabilities. This issue is a consequence of us living in a sighted world and is socially constructed. If everyone had a dog, this would not be an issue. Idealistic, perhaps, But the law is the law. It may be imperfect, but I don't think there is an ideal solution. Good afternoon, Jonathan. It's Angus Mankin in in British Columbia. Uh, Anyways, I'm recording to the gut issue. Uh, I must say, look at all the 
the problems the Americans are having with the guide dogs on on the airlines uh, with Canada where we've uh, we're just starting to get some proper rules for guide dog access on on planes uh we're still having trouble with the with uh, taxis we're even getting uh, security guards and most phone people with guide dogs and it's not just taxis are not the not the problem we're trying to get a standard here in bc that a guide dog is only for a specific test and proper guide dog unless uh unless doing a task it for on the floor and under full control and uh couple of decades ago I had I flew into an airport and I I came out the airport and there was no shuttle service at that time. I had to take a taxi up to the hotel I was staying at. There was a whole bunch of taxis all lined up and a whole bunch of taxi drivers pressured this one taxi driver to take me. He didn't want to take me. After 10 minutes in the cab, he was so impressed with my guide dog because it was four on the floor and the dog was not any problems or anything like that. And he was so impressed. I, it, it's just, I got his name, I got his cab number, I got a ride, offer for another ride of the, the air, a return ride. Uh, um, and Everything after 10 minutes, uh, you know, because uh, he had a person with a guide dog that was all over him, all over the car, and he had vowed never, ever to take a guide dog ever again. And here he's, he has to take my guide dog, and my guide dog is so well controlled and on the floor and and all that, and, and uh, he's uh, so impressed. I had one guy, uh, and he literally had a medical excuse, but he still, he still took me. I, I could tell in, during the ride, he had a face mask on, and, and all that, uh, um, with her handed her service, knowing there's a person, and she takes the handed at the same time as our accessible transit service, uh, same time as I do. And she uh, gets ahead of the dog and and puts on the face mask, and all this kind of thing. But so I kind of agree with you, it really is a slippery slope. It, it, it letting these uh, people people slide. Uh, it's just um, I took that ride with that guy um, with the face mask. I found out the taxi company on a major accommodation for that driver. Thanks, Angus. On the blind side, we did cover this business of standards in Canada, and there was a huge amount of resistance to this, and I believe that the Standards Board in Canada dropped that plan, so I don't know what's happened there with that, but gosh, 
There was a lot of advocacy on that. Hearing about how well-behaved your guide dog was in that taxi trip and how it changed the driver's mind certainly mirrors some experiences that we have had where a driver has initially refused to take us with the dog and we've pointed out it's the law and there are going to be pretty massive consequences if you don't. So there's some reluctance. And then at the end of the trip, the driver will sometimes say, you know, that was okay. Your dog really is well behaved. And it does remind us that with rights, which we've fought for and won, there also come responsibilities to make sure that our dogs are well behaved. And of course, that the guide dog schools are giving us animals that are up to the task. But I remember on the day of the Brexit referendum, (laughs) I was watching the coverage and we were going up on the scenic train trip all the way from Wellington to Auckland. It was quite a long train trip, something Bonnie really wanted to do. When we got to the station in Auckland, we were just keen to get to the hotel and unpack. And there was a driver who refused to take the dog. And what was really interesting about that was we had a very similar experience to the one that you are reporting. The other taxi drivers got very angry and said, you have to take the dog. It's the law. Don't be an idiot, basically. And the driver just flat out refused. In the end, there was an official from the railway station who came out and said, if you are not willing to obey the law, you are not welcome in our taxi stand. He took the number plate He reported it to the taxi company and to the police, and he told the driver, go away, you're not welcome. And members of the public were applauding. And it really is good when you feel well-supported like that. Hello, Mosin at Large listeners. This is Awais Patel following up on my comment about accommodating religious requirements in regards to guide dogs. As a Muslim, I can tell you that the spit of a dog is considered unhallowed. Therefore, the driver must refuse to take it on their vehicle. If the dog drools, then its spit can touch the seats, which contaminates other people who sit in the car, especially if they are Muslims. With religious freedom comes the responsibility to obey the regulations of that religion. Please note that I am blind myself. I have learned one very simple thing in life. Treat others the way you wish to be treated. If I wish others forgive me today, though they have ways to with ways to overcome my refusal, I will hope and pray that they receive the same treatment from someone else. For a moment, be a little less selfish and consider what your actions to advocate can lead to in the driver's life. Have you considered that people immigrate to a country to find better living conditions? Do you know what they suffered in their con- in their country? By advocating for your rights, not only are you selfish, you are depriving someone and their family members from affording their basic needs to live. Not all individuals have enough education that allows them to do high-paying jobs. In conclusion, why not show your kindness by sacrificing your comfort and rights for the well-being of others around you? Legislation is one instrument for safeguarding the civil rights of blind people. And in many countries around the world, the law is clear that taxi and rideshare drivers must transport blind people with their guide dogs. And for that matter, disabled people with registered service animals. 
But what's the right thing to do from a moral standpoint when it seems that two sets of human rights, the rights of a blind person and the rights of someone with strong religious convictions, conflicts irreconcilably? Well, to discuss these issues, I've invited Graham Innes onto the show. Graham is the former Disability Discrimination Commissioner in Australia, and he joins me now. Welcome, Graham. Good to be talking with you. Always good to talk with you, Jonathan. For those who aren't familiar with the framework over in Australia, can you give us a bit of an overview of the role that you formerly held and the role that the Human Rights Commission plays in Australian society? The Human Rights Commission plays two broad roles. Firstly, to deal with complaints of discrimination lodged under the range of legislation uh, that we have, discrimination on the basis of disability, uh, gender, um, uh, race uh, and and a, and a number of other areas, um, and secondly, it has a an educative role uh, and a policy uh, input role. So it it advises government on policy and the impact of those policies in the area of human rights. And I was actually it has a um, it has a set of commissioners, about six or seven commissioners, who tend to focus in their particular areas of expertise. Um, and I was Disability Discrimination Commissioner uh, for just under a decade, but I was also actually Human Rights Commissioner for uh, about three years. Um, there are often dual roles uh, in the Commissioner's positions, uh, and and so I, I guess I bring to this conversation um, that broader human rights experience as well as the disability experience. So the way that that structure is set up then, does it mean that if you get a situation like the one we're about to talk about where there is conflicting human rights, do the discussions ever get kind of lively? Oh, well, <laughs> human rights discussions often get lively, uh, but um, yes, yes, they can. And uh, the thing about human rights is that there are very few uh, absolute rights. Um, most human rights, and this is not just in Australia, but internationally in, in the various uh, conventions that... Uh, countries can sign up to uh, uh, through the UN process. Um, Most rights um, have, if you like, caveats uh, which apply to them. Uh, The right to life is perhaps one exception to that. That, That's an absolute right. But but most human rights um, have some level of caveats. And as a general rule, uh, the caveats that apply are that a person is entitled to... um, to expect to be able to exercise um, a right, um, but it can't impact negatively on the rights of others. And that's the balancing exercise that one has to go through when one is determining, um, if you like, which right trumps which other right. So in terms of the issue under discussion here, which is really should there ever be a religious exemption, which would allow somebody who's operating an Uber or a taxi to decline a blind person with a guide dog. I presume that like many religious issues, these are often matters of interpretation even within that religion. And I presume that there is some debate about the place of dogs or their lack of place in the Muslim culture. Um, Well, that's absolutely true. And depending on how orthodox your interpretation is within the Muslim culture uh, can have a major impact. Uh, There is a situation, and I heard um, one of your listeners talking about that on the podcast last week, and I can confirm the uh, veracity of that story. There's a situation in the UK where a council of imams actually gave permission for a blind person who um, uh, follows the Muslim faith uh, to bring his guide dog uh, into 
uh, his regular mosque or other mosques that he might wish to uh, attend in the uh, area if he you know travelled around um, on the basis that that council of imams could make an exception uh, for that animal because it was uh, supporting a person with a disability. So I suppose what you and I in New Zealand and Australia might call reasonable adjustment or reasonable accommodation. Um, but uh, for more orthodox um, followers of Islam, um, there might be a narrower interpretation of, uh, of that, and that might, uh, in their view, impinge on um, a person's right to, um, uh, to travel in a vehicle. But the bottom line is that the the right to your religious belief can't trump another person's rights in terms of um, exercise uh, of getting on with their life and uh, and get, and one thing about getting on with our lives is that we need to travel. So the um, the general expectation would be if if someone has that that level of um, orthodoxy in their in their religious belief, then probably um, driving a taxi or an Uber is not the um, the profession that they would be best uh, to follow. In the same way as someone uh, perhaps who uh, was uh, a person who followed the Jewish religion and uh, took an orthodox view, then um, you know there would be particular restaurants in which they probably wouldn't be able to work as a chef because they wouldn't be able to prepare foods which may uh, breach their religious belief. Or for someone who took um, very orthodox Christian views, uh, they probably, uh, if that view included uh, the um, the solid uh, position on on uh, right to life, they probably wouldn't be able to work in a, a maternity uh, section of a hospital or in a, in a hospital where um, where abortions may be uh, carried out because women uh, chose that course for their own body. So this is the way that, um, that rights need to balance between each other. There are all kinds of advocates I could have talked to about this issue, but one of the reasons why I thought of you and really wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about this is that I know from your tweets on social media and I'm sure some of your wider advocacy work, you have been very public about your view that countries like New Zealand and Australia should be welcoming of migrants, particularly refugees, and that we should open our doors and give them a home and, and, and make people feel included. On that basis, one of our listeners is arguing this week that people have come often from very difficult circumstances to start a new life and there is a limited number of choices that they can do in terms of vocational options and that driving a vehicle is often a, a pretty easy one for them to do and to get them established. Why should not their right to settle into a new country while still staying true to their religion be respected in some way? Uh, well, it should be respected in most ways, Jonathan. There's no no question about that, and you're right. I, I've been a strong advocate of support for asylum seekers and refugees, and um, support and assisting them to build their um, their lives in in the country that they've uh, chosen to come to, having been forced to uh, leave their country of birth. Um, I feel strongly about that because. I always think that it must be a very difficult decision to actually make the decision to leave the country where you were born and brought up. Um, we all have affinity and ties to um, to that country. So it must be a very tough thing to do. And I have a great deal of respect and admiration for people who take that decision and, and follow through with it. And sometimes it's very much a forced 
decision. However, if you come to a country uh, which um, applies uh, human rights and discrimination laws, then you know you have to respect that country. If you came from a left a country where they drive on the right hand side of the road, and you come to one where they drive on the left, you know you can't continue to do what you used to do. And um, I would say absolutely, um, there's a great opportunity for a person to drive a vehicle in the country that they've come to, and that is um, the job that many people arriving in a new country might take. Perhaps though, it needs to be a vehicle that is not transporting people. Um, perhaps it needs to be a you know a delivery process or a um, or a truck or something like that. Which if if they if the transport of people using assistance animals is going to impinge on your uh, religious beliefs. And yet we do get driven around by taxi drivers and Uber drivers who are Muslim. In fact. To be honest, it's almost hard for me to complete this story without choking up. But one of the things that really remains very uh, steadfast in my memory is coming home from CSUN in 2019. And the first thing I did after dumping my bags was to get in a cab and go to my local mosque after the uh, mosque atrocity here oh, in yes. uh, New Zealand and Christchurch mm. just to leave some flowers on the lawn. Yep. And Bonnie came with me. And she came with her dog and the taxi driver happened to be Muslim. And uh, I'll always remember that because he was grateful that we went to the mosque to leave our flowers. And uh, but we've had many experiences like that where Muslim taxi drivers have transported us without issue. And I'm wondering what dialogue there may have been where you are with the Muslim community, with with leaders in the Muslim community about this issue? Uh, Well, there certainly has been dialogue, and and I've been part of that dialogue when I worked um, with the Australian Human Rights Commission. And I've also travelled with a a range of um, taxi drivers, some of whom practice the Muslim religion, um, and also um, interacted with people. Uh, My former house in Sydney, uh, there, there was a mosque between it and the railway station, uh, that I went to regularly, so I regularly um, passed there with my uh, with my dog and and had sort of a nodding uh, acquaintances with a number of people who uh, who who visited that mosque and uh, worshipped at that mosque, um, and um, you know we had various conversations. If if uh, uh, the parking was always tight at that mosque, so there was always a bit of a negotiation about um, vehicles parking on the footpath and uh, finding ways around them and that things like that. So. Um, I was clearly interacting with people who, um, uh, when I was using my guide dog, um, travelling with my guide dog, I um, there has been that dialogue, and and I know of um, numerous taxi drivers who follow the Muslim religion, um, who will carry assistance animals in their vehicle. So that's why at the start of this conversation, I talked about the um, orthodoxy of the of the views of, of people, because there are many uh, people who follow that religion, who, uh, for whom they have, they have made that uh, exception. And I've had conversations with drivers who say, this dog is serving a, a particular purpose that, in my view, gives it a different status, and I'm able to carry it in my car. And yet, refusals are more common than they should be. Mm. One of the things I've picked up talking about this with Australians on social media is that Uber in particular seems to be quite a problem at the moment in Australia and New Zealand. And what that suggests to me is that there's a deep systemic problem with the way that uh, these drivers are being onboarded and clearly not being told appropriately about what their obligations are under the law. 
Um, what do we do about that? Yeah, I think, um, and and I'm not suggesting I haven't experienced refusals. I have, and on a number of occasions, um, you know, religious reasons have been used as the justification. I have to say that um, on some of those occasions, I am doubtful that they are the real reason. Uh, but um, uh, on others, I, I, I believe that they are, the, and that's just a judgment that I make. I don't have a lot of evidence to base that on. But on others, I believe that, that they are the, the real reason. Um, I think the responsibility sits with uh, with Uber and uh, um, uh, Ola and, and uh, the other rideshare operators uh, and with taxi companies to better uh, provide training. And if someone has a, a, a quite orthodox view on this issue, then you know once they've completed that training, maybe they need to think about whether this is the right job for them to do. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I think the responsibility rests with the, with the service provider uh, to better train their drivers. I, I know that Uber has done significant work around this in Australia because I was part of that work. Um, but all of their training is online and uh, you know, it's easy to um, give less weight to these sorts of things than perhaps should be done. So there does need to be a continuing dialogue with um, with us as individuals, but perhaps also with um, organisations that uh, advocate for us, such as Blind Citizens Australia and their equivalents in other other countries, to ensure that that uh, training is uh, is kept up to uh, up to the task. Yeah, and you often sort of wonder if you're being fobbed off. I've had situations where Bonnie's uh, guide dog has been refused and because it's my Uber account, I'm the one that lodges the complaint yep. and deals with the, uh, the the telephone process that they initiate and they assure you that if it's a first offence, they're going to be taken off the platform for a little bit of retraining, yep. <laughs> re- yep. reprogramming. Yep. And then uh, if they if it happens again, they're gone, Burger. And um, nevertheless, once this happens to you, there's a little thing in the algorithm they can tweak which says you will never be matched with that driver right. again yourself do you have confidence that is actually happening because i mean it's difficult for us as consumers to verify that any of that follow-up actually does take place Um, i i do have confidence because i i shared your doubts when um i was refused um actually wanted to go and visit my daughter in hospital so it was a pretty stressful time and i had two uber refusals one after the other um when i was trying to get to the hospital so you can imagine uh where i was at that point and the third one uh got me there so i was very doubtful that uber uh did this and i and i followed up with um some of their senior executives and i've subsequently uh discovered from asking drivers that i've traveled with that people are deplatformed um and that this is one of the reasons uh that it happens um so i i, I do think uber are sincere in carrying out that um that policy, that's my experience. Um, and I know having done some work with uh, taxi operators in Australia uh, that um, uh, they can't remove drivers. That's the role of the, the state government which administers the, uh, the taxi process. That's interesting. So in that sense, at least, the fact that Uber is less regulated may be an advantage in terms of getting the bad actors off the platform. Yes, it's interesting. That's not normally the way in my experience. Um, uh, I have to say as an advocate, my default position is regulate because I haven't I've, I've had uh, experience with with many industries where they haven't delivered on their promise but from the um, follow-up that I've been able to do it seems that uber uh, does actually uh, deliver in that way 
One of the comments that we're dealing with this week is that people who insist on being transported by drivers who have religious objections are somehow being selfish and that they need to be kinder. But I think what you illustrated with your passing reference to visiting your daughter in hospital and getting two refusals in a row is that, you know, you are just as entitled to get to where you need to be without undue stress and hold up as anyone else. That's a really difficult personal family situation. Not to mention that sometimes it could be uh, a mission-critical job-related task that you have to get to. I think that's important to bear in mind. And uh, I I don't share that view that we need to be kinder and... um, and step back. I mean, I'm I'm very happy if I'm asked to by a driver to. I'm, I normally sit in the front seat with my dog just because there's more space. I'm very happy if I'm asked to by a driver to accommodate them. Uh, I will sit in the back seat um, if that resolves their issue. You mentioned that if somebody has a religious objection to driving blind people with guide dogs, that there are other driving jobs that don't involve passengers that they might be able to do. Would you apply that same logic to somebody who has allergies and says that they can't transport somebody for that reason? Yes, I would. Um, and my, um, I would say in that, in that context that uh, you know, I wouldn't apply as a blind person for a job driving a truck. Um, because I would be excluded from that job. I'd be excluded from that job by our system, which wouldn't give me a license to drive. Quite understandably, I shouldn't have a license to drive. Uh, I'm like you. I'm waiting for my Google car. But uh, um, <laughs> you know, so so uh, I um, I would say that a person um, who had those sorts of allergies, of course, they could still drive a vehicle, and there'd be many vehicle driving jobs that they would be able to carry out. But probably driving a vehicle which was carrying passengers uh, would be a job that they would be better served not to uh, not to apply for. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosen.org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hello, Jonathan, says Janet Brown. I have been using on-screen Braille on the iPhone since Braille Touch, and I am good at it. In fact, this Braille input is the main reason I remain an iOS fan. But even before 14.4, something went wrong with on-screen Braille. Sometimes dot one and four seem to slide off the screen completely or just for a while. I turn either the phone or my hand, but often nothing works and no more can I write. What can I do? Hmm, I suppose the one thing I'd be interested in finding out is whether you are using the tabletop mode or screen away mode. I'm not sure if that makes a difference or not. I love the tabletop mode of browse screen input. I seem to be in a bit of a minority about that, but I like it because it feels just like brailing on a Perkins. And if you get a surface you can braille on, even your lap, I use Braille screen input a lot. And I haven't seen this one myself, which, of course, is no help to you at all. 
I suppose the first thing I would try if I were troubleshooting this and it was really bothering me and affecting my productivity is to invest a little bit of time in various resets. The first thing I would do is do the warm reset of the phone. So you press volume up, then you release that and you immediately press volume down and you release that and then you hold down the side button for about 10 seconds. So there's a rhythm to it. Volume up, let it go. Volume down, let it go. Then hold down the side button on the other side of the phone. Sometimes that helps. The more drastic thing to do, if that hasn't helped, is to go into settings and general and reset and choose the option that resets all settings. By doing that, you won't erase your apps, but you will have a phone that's got rid of all your customization of the settings that you like. But maybe that will clear it up. Before you try that drastic thing, though, Hopefully you have contacted Apple Accessibility, just in case they have a magic fix for you. They may have some knowledge base article somewhere that sorts this out. And if anyone else has experienced what you are, where dots one and four sort of vanish off the screen, and I'm assuming because you're such a regular user of browse screen input that you do the usual things like calibrating and that kind of stuff. If others are having this problem and have solved it through some sort of fix, please do feel free to share the secret with us. A question from David van der Molen, which we will throw out to the incredibly talented Mosin at Large Brains Trust. He says, hi, Jonathan, does anyone know of a PC stick running Windows 10 that has an internal speaker and sound card? I think a device like that would be ideal for people who use a Mantis or, like me, a Hims Q Braille. I used to have a kangaroo PC stick, but it didn't include a speaker or sound card. It does sound like a really groovy idea, David. Let's see what anyone comes up with. Thank you for the question. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. We go to California now and hear from Grace D. She says, hi, I am a blind person in California who really loves your podcast. Thank you so much, Grace. I do have a question, though. You have so many cool songs on your podcast, from the opening song to the song you use to transition, but they're all personalized. How do you get those personalized little jingles? And that was sent from Grace's iPhone, that was. Good to hear you writing in for the first time, Grace. Really appreciate that. I've been working in radio, believe believe it or not, since I was four years old. I sat it on the radio way back. And I've always loved radio jingles. I think they can make or break a show, a really good jingle package. And I got into the whole jingly jingles thing because when I was 40, I decided that I would treat myself to a 40th birthday present. So I was rocking the Mosin Explosion, my radio show that's predominantly music-based, which is still going on Mushroom FM. And you can hear that every weekday at 2 a.m. and 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 11 a.m. and p.m. Pacific, where you are, Grace. And for my 40th birthday, I decided to get some jingles, and I'd known for some time about a service from Jam Creative Productions, who make a lot of radio station jingles, called Jam Personal Counts. Now, Jam is operated by a guy called Jonathan Wilfred, and he is a major jingle nut. He loves jingles. He has a real respect for and passion for jingles, And he had actually purchased the old jingle packages from Pam's, which was a jingle company that was huge, huge in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And because of the music that I tend to play on the Mosin Explosion, I went for their Pam's personal cut service and I kind of picked 
from a range of old jingle packages that I loved hearing as a kid and got a series of Mosin Explosion jingles, which you can still hear on my show. Well, when it was time to launch the Mosin at Large podcast, I thought, why don't I do the same thing? Because you very rarely hear podcasts with sung jingles. It's not often done at all. And in this case, I went to the Jam website because I wanted something a wee bit more modern sounding, sort of news and current affairsy. And what you can do with the Jam personal cuts thing is that you can audition a whole lot of personal cut packages and find something that you like. And it took me quite a few hours of listening. What would fit Mosin at large? And I found the package I want. I finally heard this and I thought, yes, we can make this work for Mosin at large. And so what you have to do is you submit your application. You can't be making any money out of it, you see. The personal cuts... It's for non-profit type things, but they still charge you, I think it's 250 or $260 a cut. So, you know, I mean, I had just turned 50 when I started Mosin at Lunch. So the Mosin Explosion jingles were my 40th present to me, and um, the Mosin at Large jingles were the 50th present to me. And also I just started my new job, so it was a present all round. So that's how the Mosin at Large jingles came about from Jam Creative Productions. You can find them on the web at jingles.com. And even if you don't buy anything from Jam, you can spend many happy hours listening to jingle packages because some of us are just plain nerdy like that. There you go, Grace. Hope that helps. This email comes from Janice Schroeder, who says, Hello, Jonathan. I have been listening for some time but have not contributed until now. Well, I'm glad you have, Jenna. I have a question, she says, I think you and other listeners will be able to help with, if anyone can. No pressure. I am trying to find an app that can be used in Windows 10 to load BRF files to read on my Braille display via JAWS. I recently got the L Braille. I really don't like the scratch pad on the Focus 40 Blue, plus the Focus only has a mini SD card drive and the cards do not have the capacity to hold the thousands of books I have downloaded from Bookshare over the years. Thank you for all the time and energy you put into the show and podcast. It's a great service to blind people, and I love hearing contributions from people in all parts of the world. Thank you so much, Jenna. That's very generous. And me too. It is so cool to hear people from all over the world with their different perspectives. I take it that it is not as easy as opening up, say, Notepad, and turning your grade two translation off and just reading from there. Is that correct? I have something in the back of my mind that says that could be because of uppercase letters in the BRF file. But this is really hazy for me because I must admit, I don't ever read BRF files. So I'm not going to be able to answer this one myself. But we do have lots of Braille devotees out there, and they are probably reading BRF books from Bookshare or Bard if they're in the United States, and may be able to tell us what they are doing to read these on Windows. Hey, Jonathan, this is Peggy Kern. I just thought I would pop in and uh, tell you guys about my latest adventures with uh, technology. It all started when our Comcast internet, well, we have internet and cable TV 
phone uh, bill went up because our promo had expired. Uh, we had actually cable TV and cable internet, and we had uh, phone service with them, which we never used. We just got it because that was part of the package, and we just never used it. But anyway, Dan went to the Comcast store and decided he would see what he could get. And it's pretty much the same plan as we had, except now instead of the phone service being a landline where you just plug in a phone, they gave him a, a cell phone. Well, they didn't give it to him. He actually had to buy it. And it's kind of interesting. It's an LG some real cheapy $200 phone because, you know, we don't use it, so he didn't want anything expensive. But um, I figured since we weren't using it anyway, why don't I just kind of experiment a little bit and see what using an Android phone is like. So Dan checked it out and they had TalkBack on it, which is funny when he first enabled it, it sounded like it was saying dog bag. <laughs> So dog bag, they have dog bag, a.k.a. talk back. And so I've been kind of playing around with this. It is just so strange. I'm not sure how much of my experience of it is frustrating because it's new and how much is frustrating just because it's weird. It does seem like there are... Some of the commands like to get to certain screens or menus where you have to kind of draw a certain shape on the screen seems kind of weird. It's like, why not just flicking up or down or, you know, different things like voiceover has. But I'm trying not to be prejudiced and uh, just trying to see how it goes. And I'm getting there. It's not as easy. Like I say, I don't know how much of that is just that I've been using an iPhone for 10 years. But so far, I've been able to put Dan and Jen's phone numbers into the contacts and send them text messages. And I input our Comcast account stuff in and got that activated. So I'm making progress, but it's just really a strange, strange experience. But yet it's cool that these services are giving us ways of having access to the devices. And so anyway, that's my latest adventure, uh, dabbling into Android just because it's there. <laughs> And I will keep you guys posted on my progress or regress or whatever else. Thanks, Peggy. It is a really big change, isn't it, going from iOS to those single finger gestures where you have to do those angles. And I do find it really convoluted. It's one of the reasons why I was attracted to the Samsung screen reader, which does have multi-touch. And, of course, in Android 11, they have now introduced multi-touch gestures for the TalkBack API and for that matter, any other screen reader, I guess, that wants to work with it. So I don't know whether your phone is capable of upgrading to Android 11 and dabbling in the new TalkBack, but that should make things quite a bit easier for those people who enjoy the benefits of multi-touch 
But do keep us posted. It'll be interesting to hear how you get on. Hi, Jonathan and listeners. It's Pete from Merriold, England, in Robin Hood County. Thank you for your excellent demonstration of LiDAR and the interview that went with it. I enjoyed it all, and I've learned a lot. I've used seeing AI for most things, but it's in my tool bag along with other assistive apps. I think SuperSense have one as well, but it's not as good. I use Clue indoors and Soundscape outdoors. I enjoyed the podcast last week. I learned a lot of things from it, and I hope you continue to provide more of the same. I can understand the reluctance of people to take their phones and have them on display whilst out and about in the UK. People tend to get them nicked. Now, this is a story you may not have had happened in New Zealand. In my local area, which is Nottingham, there is a district called Clifton. And there was a 999 call and the ambulance went to the house. They went in and fetched the guy out on the stretcher and the ambulance had been nicked. I wonder how many countries that's happened to. I can tell you now that is a true story, as true as I'm sitting here. And to finish off with, if you fancy a satirical programme on politics, I suggest you listen to a programme called The Skewer. It's on BBC Radio 4 on a Wednesday evening. I think it's on between 11 and 12pm, but I tend to listen to catch up, so I listen to it later. Take care, everybody, and look forward to many more podcasts to come throughout the year and the decade. Woo, thank you, Peter. Regarding that business with the ambulance, that is just scum of the earth territory, isn't it? Absolutely appalling. And yes, the skewer is fantastic. Thank you for the recommendation for those who haven't caught up with that yet. Also, for those not aware, the BBC Sounds app is now available worldwide. I used to have to get it from the UK App Store, but now BBC Sounds, which has a very wide range of UK stuff from the BBC, is in any app store. So if you don't have it yet, do grab it and feast yourself on all of the fine material that the BBC produces. Responding to Amy Rule's question about AirPods, Macs and headphones, Tim says, in the question about hearing aids and headsets, you didn't mention the option of streaming to the hearing aid. As the listener is a new hearing aid user, she may not be aware of that option, so be sure to mention it somehow. In my opinion, it would be better to spend the $800 AirPods fee on better hearing aids with great streaming. I often joke that if people want great sound from their phone, they should put their sound to the level which will cause them a hearing impairment. I think that a good streaming hearing aid outperforms the best headphones, especially when on the move. Wow, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think I would far rather be in a position to use AirPods for their amazing full-rich bass if I could, and I can't, so I'm grateful to have hearing aids that keep me going. There was a really interesting piece that I heard on YouTube a couple of weeks ago, actually, when I was doing some research on the Otacon Moore hearing aids, and the audiologist was making the point that one of the big problems for music listening with hearing aids is that the moulds or the domes, whatever you choose to use for your hearing solutions, they do leak bass. So you're not going to get that really full, rich bass sound from hearing aid moulds and domes and streamers that you are with a good pair of headphones. So probably I would say a good 90% of the time I'm happy to use my hearing aids with the built-in MFI functionality and for that matter the cable. 
that gives me direct audio input. But there are times when if you really want to appreciate music, nothing beats a really top quality pair of studio headphones coexisting with your hearing aids for that full rich bass sound. But certainly it is really nice when you're on the move and you're using, say, a GPS program or something like that to get the balance right and you can hear your environmental sounds and the GPS app or you can be talking to an IRA agent and it is pretty slick the way that they work together. Also, when you're just casually listening to music or audiobooks on your phone, certainly the MFI functionality and other streaming solutions are great. I also enjoy having my Sonos port, which is connected to an Oticon TV adapter, and the Sonos port is AirPlay capable. And that means that essentially my hearing aids, thanks to the TV adapter, have become their own AirPlay device. And I can walk around much of the upstairs at Mosin Towers and get audio piped directly to my hearing aid. And that actually does sound quite a bit better. Slightly wider frequency response than the made-for-iPhone functionality. Yes, it is now time direct from the studios here at Mosin Towers for another Bonnie Bulletin. Hello, guys. Welcome to you. Hi. Shall we talk about... The new excitement in our lives, this is an audio social network called Clubhouse. And some people will be familiar with this and others will not. So I think we should probably start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. When you sing, you begin with... I first heard about Clubhouse on all the tech media that I read. I don't know how long, a long time ago, maybe a year or more ago. And Clubhouse is one of those things that could have been designed for and by blind people because mm-hmm. it's a social network but it's all audio uh-huh. it's all done in voice and it's been started by these people who've kind of attracted a lot of fairly well-known senior people uh, people who are like venture capitalists tech executives very well-known p- people in leadership people. roles and what that does it's very clever marketing what that does is it creates a kind of a mystique around Clubhouse. This is an elite place to be, man, and I really want to be on there. I so want to be on there. And gradually, they've been rolling it out. They've been expanding the number of invitations. And in fact, that happens in a kind of a granular way. The more you participate, the more invitations you get in your little inbox to invite people with. So gradually, ever so gradually, the thing just has been expanding. And for a wee while now, Clubhouse has been getting out there among the the well-connected but it hasn't been that accessible. There have been a few challenges from an accessibility point of view, which is really ironic given that this is audio and yeah. blind people will, will often flock to this. Just the other day, they came out with uh, quite a significant accessibility update. And I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's hugely intuitive in every place yet, but it's usable now. And I guess this is the difference between sometimes between accessibility and usability. Anyway... Uh, We got on this uh, clubhouse. Having explained what it is, I'll hand over to you. You can give me your first impressions of it. I had heard about it from you and probably tech news and stuff like that, social media. But what really got me intrigued, because I had seen a few blind people on Facebook that are on it or that were getting on it for professional networking reasons. And then there was an article that was shared around from Forbes by a freelance tech journalist that works from for them. It was very poorly written. 
And it, it really looked like the person had not done much, if any, homework on it, said that it was completely inaccessible. They even admitted that, that well, they're, they're, the headline was it's so elite that it um, doesn't include disabled people. Because it talked about how there's no live captioning, which it's all audio, so I'm not even sure how you could even do that. It talked about how it wasn't accessible with voiceover, that it was a, a cesspool of racism, sexism, and obviously ableism. And even the person admitted that they didn't even go into any of the rooms. Uh, so I thought, you know, that that's poor journalism. I'm just going to call it for what it is. Well, I think... It is evolving quickly. So it yeah. became voiceover accessible really properly just the other day. Yeah. So it's possible that there's just a clash of when it was submitted yeah. and when it was published or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I've only been on it a short time, mm-hmm. but there is actually quite a lot of good quality discussion. Yeah. So if I can just explain the way that this works, when you get on it, you're in the kind of hallway of the clubhouse and anybody can start a room and they can say what the topic of that room is. The room can be public or private. You can then, you know, people that you follow or who follow you can get notified that you've started this room and join you. You can also schedule events, and it's got quite good calendar integration. At some point, I will do a full demo of this, I think, for the podcast. But it's got calendar integration. So if if you see that somebody scheduled an event that's of interest to you, mm-hmm. talking about a particular topic, you can you can add it to your calendar. There are clubs on Clubhouse about different things. So currently I'm in quite a few about podcasting, radio. There is a disability club called The 15%, which has disability-related discussion. In fact, while I've been on here doing this show live, I see there's been a discussion about the contribution that Clubhouse can make in the disability space. Yeah, that's the one I was on. Uh, There are a number of blind people uh, on Clubhouse who are congregating and getting together. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly just untrue that... um, Disabled people aren't on there. Uh, the audio quality is not too bad on the lowish bandwidth side, but I think they're doing that to try and make sure that there's not buffering and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. It's well done. If you get in a really well-moderated clubhouse room, it's just like listening to talk radio. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of – I, I kind of laugh because when we were in that introduction welcome room that talked about a lot of – with anything else, there's a few things that are more like infomercials. I, yeah. I think I got three pushes about make your million this day today, you know, and I'm like, no, thank you. you well, you can tweak your followers you to try can, and get rid of yeah, that but stuff. The, and, and then I was on earlier because sometimes they pop up quickly, like the one that after the – it was the they called it the impeachment surprise, and it was <laughs> black conservatives from Georgia, and so I went in with them, and they were discussing it, having a discussion. He, one of the guys that moderates, it does something called after we voted. So it it talks about, and they don't do a huge deep dive into everything, but they were having a really good conversation with several speakers and. Stuff and one person was actually watching C-SPAN while the, and giving updates, but yeah. it was really good and it was very well moderated. You know, I haven't seen any flaming of people yet. Yeah, so, um, apparently it does happen, but you can I'm report sure people does. with any yeah. other. I know. mean, it happens with every bit of social media. There's 
because we're people and we get hot under the collar about topics and that's just the way it is. But if you can report them and that sort of thing, then that's fine. But uh, yeah, there's there's a, a lot on there. Um, a lot on there, yeah. And what happens is that when you go into a room, if you, if you just see a notification that a room has started, you'll go in and you will be a listener. So yes. your mic's off. If you raise your hand to talk, kind of like Zoom, and then accepting the invitation to go on stage is the terminology they use. It takes a couple of steps with voiceover right now, and I'm hoping mm-hmm. that they can just refine that because I can see, you know, if I was trying to use this, say, as an adjunct to Mosin at large, I don't want to adopt a platform that requires a high degree of tech savvy yeah, for yeah. people to participate. It's really important to me that anybody uh, can participate if they have you know, fairly uh, rudimentary tech skills. That's really critical. So I don't think that's quite there yet in that regard. But you accept the invitation to go on stage and then you can talk and you can mute and unmute yourself. They've thought about this really carefully. So a moderator can mute you. But yeah. once a moderator has muted you, they cannot unmute you because you never want the situation where your microphone becomes active when you don't want it to. No. So they can turn you off, but only you can turn yourself back on. I will be curious about a couple of things. Three things. First, They've got a lot of VC, a lot of venture capital coming in at the moment. So where's the business model? Are they going to start charging for uh, premium services? Uh, We don't know where it's going at this point. The other thing is, you know, I'd be interested to see how long sighted people are happy with audio. I've seen a lot of these things over time uh, where they start with audio and everybody's like, wow. And then suddenly video is the next killer feature. Yeah, Yeah, we've got video. So, you know, I'm worried about that from our point of view. And the third thing is this space, surprisingly, the audio space area is suddenly livening up. Now, I had a uh, preview earlier in the week of a Clubhouse competitor that Twitter is working on called Twitter Spaces. I have to say it was really good. It was very accessible. The audio quality was better. And, uh, of course, you've got that mass adoption of uh, Twitter, you know, anyone who wants to be on Twitter can be. So at the moment, it would be hard for us to do some sort of major Mosin at large related yeah. event where we have many, many thousands of people listening every week. Yeah. Uh, because those many, many thousands of people, most of them aren't on there. You know, the invitations are still really hard to get. Yeah. So, but Twitter won't have that problem when they take spaces out of beta. It'll just be available to everybody. Yeah. And similarly, Facebook is apparently working on a a clubhouse competitor. So they're going to get squeezed. Yeah. But I quite like it. You know, um, part of me says, how long will this last? Will the novelty wear off? Is it just a kind of a cool toy to play with and the elite factor of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually getting in there is attractive. So there are a number of things to to watch play out. I I like it because it's – and there's nothing wrong with just Joe Schmo setting up his room to talk about something. But – I really like that the people that I've gone into the rooms are, when you look at their profiles, if you Google them, they are experts in their field. And I I like that, Mm. that they're sharing that professional knowledge. It's not just someone that decides, hey, I'm an expert on whatever and, you know, gets in there and and turns into a free for all. But they it is like you said, talk radio. So they they do have I was on one yesterday, small steps and giant leaps. And it's about space. And they no soup. No, I'd never have guessed from that. Yeah. (laughs) uh, It's about, you know, the human exploration of space. And they had several astronauts on there. 
and mm. uh, that are real astronauts. They were speakers, you know, a couple people from SpaceX and Blue Endeavor. And, you know, they're, they're actually, they, you feel like you're getting your value to go in and, and, and listen. And, and but I that's just, also their challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Because as more people get on Clubhouse, since anyone, absolutely anyone can just start a room, yeah. the signal to noise ratio will go down. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it was funny, but like I, I saw this room with a lot of people in it last night discussing should the harmonica be banned? <laughs> like, what the heck? Well, <laughs> should, I mean, that's. The, it's like, and it to, went on pineapple on to, pizza. To somebody, you know, and it's okay to have fun things where you let your hair down and debate something that's okay. totally ridiculous. Sorry. I mean, it's okay. I mean, they, there may be a movement to ban the harmonica. I mean, who knows? But because what about old Stevie? What's Stevie going to do if they ban the harmonica? Well, maybe they should have him on there. Yeah, they he should have him on there. He might, the he might well be on it. He could be yeah. the opposition to say, "Hey, look, this is how I made my living. You're not yeah. going to take the harmonica away." So, I mean, and what about harmonica Lewinsky? Oh goodness. Yeah. Anyway, but mm. so since we're talking impeachment today, yeah, I know people are saying, "Okay, how do I get it? How do I get it?" You can get the Clubhouse app from the App Store, like like any other app, and you need to find somebody on Clubhouse who is willing to invite you. You have to give them your phone number, and that person also has to have invitations available to them. When you join, you get two invitations. Mm -hmm. And the more you participate, I think, the more invitations might come your way. But it is quite hard to get on it. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin FM.